Cases EM Quick Hits podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. First up, we have Sarah Reed, our new Peds Quick Hits guru, talking about the evidence for the Park score, which, heads up, is probably the best risk stratification tool we have for kids we suspect might have appendicitis. Appendicitis is the most common surgical emergency in kids, and we all know that this is often the biggest rule out when we're seeing a child with abdominal pain, and it's definitely what the parents are worried about. So it can be really difficult to tell who needs a surgical consult or an ultrasound, especially if this means you have to transfer the child to your pediatric referral center. So the Pediatric Appendicitis Risk Calculator, or the PARC, aims to help with the diagnosis of appendicitis in kids. And this was originally derived and validated and published in Pediatrics in April 2018. So the authors derived and validated the score in kids 5 to 18 years of age, less than 96 hours of abdominal pain, who were under evaluation for suspected appendicitis. And it was done in a pediatric emergency department setting. And then they compared how this new score, this PARC, compared to the pediatric appendicitis score, which you might have heard of. And they used the receiver operating characteristic curve, looking at the area under the curve, and found that in the, this new PARC, it was 0.85 versus 0.77 for the pediatric appendicitis score. So both of the scores are good at predicting appendicitis with a high degree of accuracy, but the PARC was better. And half of the validation cohort for the PARC were able to be classified as either low risk or high risk with a high sensitivity and specificity, respectively. So the PARC is really good at um, looking at at least half of the kids and sorting them into low risk, i.e. you can go home with a watchful wait versus high risk. Uh, you can just have a surgical consult and might be able to actually obviate the need for imaging in, in that uh, sort of half the kids. So this new PARC score uh, looks at a number of clinical features that kind of make sense. So they look at sex, they look at age, fever, duration of pain, migration of pain to the right lower quadrant, maximum tenderness in the right lower quadrant, guarding, pain with cough, hop, or walk, and then the white count and a uh, absolute neutrophil count. The PARC is different from the pediatric appendicitis score, which actually uses some of those uh, variables as well, um, in that it, it also incorporates observed interactions between age and sex with regards to appendicitis risk. It uses the absolute neutrophil count on a continuous scale. It spits out a risk of appendicitis on a continuous scale, so you get back a percentage, so like between 0 and 100% risk of appendicitis. And because it has a lot of math, it actually you need to use an online calculator. So there, the authors talk about how this could be integrated into your EHR, but um, this is not something you can just like add up at the bedside, and you definitely can't do it in your head. So we know that when we have a decision rule, we have to do a prospective validation in order to assess, does this decision rule actually work? And so at the Annals of Emergency Medicine in June 2019 published a study by Cotton assessing how the park performed in a community emergency department setting. So this is a multi-center perspective observational cohort validation study. And they looked to validate the park in 11 community emerges, looking at more than 2,000 patients, ages 5 to 20. So again, they compared the park to the pediatric appendicitis score, and they divided the park scores into four risk 
categories. So if you had a less than 5% predicted probability of appendicitis with the PARC, you were deemed very low. 5% to 14% were low. 15 to 84% were intermediate and more than 84% risk of appendicitis was deemed as high. So when you look at the observed appendicitis rates, they were 1.4% in the very low. So only 1.4% of the kids had appendicitis if they were deemed very low by the score. 3% had appendicitis in the low risk group. And then 84.8% had appendicitis in the high risk group. So when they looked at sensitivity of the score, the very low and low risk scores had a sensitivity of 197.5% respectively, so very good sensitivity. And the high risk scores had a specificity of 99.3% for appendicitis. And then when they compared the PARC score to the pediatric appendicitis score, the area under the curve on that, uh, on the rock curve was 0.89% versus 0.8. So they're both really good at telling who has appendicitis, but the PARC is better. And again, 54% of the kids were able to be classified as either low risk or very low risk, and 4% were deemed as high risk. So again, confirming what was found in that original paper showing that it, this score is pretty good at getting more than half of the patients sorted into either you can go home and we'll see how things go versus you just need a surgical consult. So I think there's a few things to think about with the PARC score you know, I think the the variables that are included in it have good face validity for us. Like this is obviously all the things that you're assessing at the bedside when you're seeing a patient with possible appendicitis. The study definitely validates that the PARC is better than the pediatric appendicitis score at discriminating appendicitis with that slight improvement in the area under the curve. But we as eMERGE docs generally like to see the sensitivity of a test because we're really more interested in rule out. But I will say that those very low and low risk kids by this score with those really high sensitivities, you can feel pretty comfortable in, in ruling out appendicitis, I think. So, and further to that, I think the most important thing is that you can really sort out the kids at low risk and high risk, which is definitely helpful. So that's going to make you feel a little bit more comfortable sending kids home or calling to organize a consult or a transfer for a child that needs uh, to be seen by surgery. But just remember that like this, even with this rule, you're still going to have 40% of the patients falling into an intermediate risk group where they're still going to need an ultrasound plus or minus a consult. And the last thing is, is that with any decision rule, we need an implementation study to see how this actually impacts patient outcomes in real life. So we'll have to wait and see about that. But I think the bottom line for the PARC is that it is a more accurate decision tool for pediatric appendicitis compared to what we've had to date. It's going to require that online calculator, but that's available at parkscore.org or parkcalc.org. And I think you can feel pretty secure in your assessment of patients who fall into that low risk group or high-risk group in terms of your disposition. But just remember, you're still going still to be left with a fair number of patients in the middle who are going to need further assessment and transfer if you work outside of a pediatric hospital. All right, so while the PARC score does look quite promising and is probably the best pediatric appendicitis risk stratification calculator out there, there are limitations. And some limitations include, one, that it's never been compared to physician gestalt, which is kind of what we really want to know about. It does require blood work, which may not be necessary in those patients who you think are pretty low risk by gestalt. Like Dr. Reed said, it still requires an implementation study, and about half the patients will still require further workup in the ED. 
Next up, we have the return of the mighty Sheldon Cheskus, cardiac arrest researcher with 30-odd years of clinical experience, who's going to give us the lowdown on double defib for refractory VF. And this is going to be followed by Mark Ramsey, a resident who I caught up with at ASEP in Denver recently. He's going to address how not to electrically fry your defibrillators when doing double defib. Patients who present in refractory VF, a lot of the treatments are changing. The changes are focused on really taking either mechanical control of the cardiac arrest, and that's ECMO for patients in refractory VF. But the second technique is, can we terminate VF earlier in the field? And by terminating VF, that is getting ROSC earlier in the field than we're doing currently with standard defibrillation, and that's what double sequential external defibrillation is all about. It's been used for over 25 years in the EPS labs for patients who present in atrial fibrillation, uh, as well as patients with refractory ventricular arrhythmias, but now we're starting to see case series, case reports, observational studies, and some meta-analysis that are looking at the use of double sequential external defibrillation, but there's never been a randomized controlled trial with high-quality evidence that shows double sequential external defibrillation works. Uh, We're currently uh, in the process of carrying out the first randomized trial in the world for double sequential external defibrillation. The study is called DOSE-VF, Double Sequential External Defibrillation Refractor VF. Uh, In the study, what we're looking at is applying double sequential external defibrillation earlier than it's ever been used previously in observational series. I think this is the key. What I can tell you about refractor VF is if you're going to do something different, do it early. And I think that's very, very critical. If you wait to shock eight or shock nine, these patients will all die or a very high proportion will all die. If you do something early, you have a hope of benefit. In our recent cohort series that we published, we show that if double sequential is done earlier, the outcomes are superior than standard therapy for VF termination and ROSC. And the question is, how do you do double sequential external defibrillation? So how we do it is patients present in VF, they have three successive shocks. And then after a third fail shocks, we begin CPR by 30 compressions, two ventilations. We log roll the patient and place the posterior pad. We then do 30 compressions, two ventilations, and place an anterior pad. So now we have two pads, an AP position as well as the original AA position. We do a minute of uninterrupted CPR, and then we provide the fourth shock in sequential manner, pressing defibrillator one, then defibrillator two, and a rapid manner and carry on double sequential and that particular mechanism. We found this to be very easily done by our paramedics in our feasibility study. 96% of them were able to do it without any significant interruptions in CPR. As we said, our ongoing trial is pilot. Um, And what we're trying to do as a three-arm trial is compare standard therapy to vector change, so changing pads from the AA to the AP position, and the third arm of double sequential external defibrillation. Because in in truth, no one really knows why double sequential external defibrillation works. Is it simply the change in vector? When we defibrillate patients, we often miss the posterior lateral portion of the ventricle using 
using standard AA defibrillation. The thought is by changing pads, we may in fact capture that proportion of the ventricle. And what about energy and double sequential external defibrillation? The thought is that the first shock may in fact lower the defibrillation threshold, while the second shock actually defibrillates the ventricle, resulting in termination of VF. These are all things that we're hopefully going to be able to answer by the dose VFRCT, and we'll have further information to provide at that point in time. But again, it's an excellent strategy to think about in patients who are not responding to standard therapy, but if you're going to do it, my strong suggestion is to do it early as opposed to later and do it with the technique that we've mentioned. And hopefully over the next 18 months, we'll have the first randomized trial with strong scientific evidence as to whether double sequential vector change are superior to standard therapy for patients in shock refractory VF. Talking about double defib, I ran into a rising star resident from Maimonides, which down here at ASAP Denver, they all call MIMO, who has recently published on double defib. And I just have one specific question for Mark Ramsey, this all-star resident. So Mark, we know that we don't have solid evidence for double defib as of yet. And one of the reasons why some people suggest not using double defib is because it can blow up both your machines, which will cost your hospital a lot of money. What is the deal with the notion that there's a chance that we can blow up these machines? Hey, Anton, it's great to be on here. So to answer that question, I want to summarize it in two main points. The first is kind of like parking your car in any major city. Your pads better be close, but absolutely not touching. The second is you better be using the same model of defibrillator. Otherwise, you risk damaging one or both of those devices. So the other notion, and that's the other important point, is that it is indicated for refractory VFib, which we all know not to sync. However, I've seen reports of it being done for pulseless VTAC, and it is not recommended for pulseless VTAC at this time. You are more likely to sync if you are dealing with pulseless VTAC, and that will also damage your defibrillators because you are intentionally delivering energy to not just the patient, but also one or both of your devices, which they are not expecting to receive and might blow their capacitors and ultimately the device itself. And now for our CGM EM Cases collaboration with Hans Rosenberg and his special guest today is Krishan Yadaf, a researcher from Ottawa, who's going to be summarizing his recent article in CGM, Just the Facts, Diagnosis and Management of Non-Purulent Cellulitis in the ED. Welcome, Christian. Thanks for having me on. My first question is, when you're assessing a patient in whom you suspect cellulitis, what other diagnoses must the emergency physician consider? So it's uh, really important to consider diagnostic mimics of cellulitis, such as an abscess, deep vein thrombosis, or a ruptured Baker cyst. It's equally important to remember that bilateral cellulitis is extremely rare and probably doesn't exist. So if you see somebody with bilateral symptoms, it's much more likely that this is something like venous stasis dermatitis. My second question is, what is the utility of point-of-care ultrasonography to differentiate between non-purulent versus cellulitis with abscess? 
A recent meta-analysis found that the use of POCUS for diagnosing abscesses in, the, in ED patients with SSTIs, which are known as skin and soft tissue infections, has a sensitivity of 95.5% and a specificity of 80.3%. When there is a clinical suspicion, POCUS should be used to rule out the presence of an underlying abscess. Now, for patients who present to the emergency department with cellulitis, are there any investigations that you would expect us to do in particular? Uh, that's a great question and, and clinically very important. Uh, the diagnosis of cellulitis is clinical, so laboratory tests such as a white blood cell count, blood cultures, etc. are unnecessary. Now, one other question that I have. How do you decide whether to prescribe oral or IV antibiotics? I feel like this is often a conundrum in the emergency department. Following the diagnosis of cellulitis, this is the first and most important decision point. When selecting route of therapy, the following factors are considerations for IV therapy. If the patient has failed oral therapy, in your opinion, if they're systemically unwell, if there are clinical signs of deeper infection, if they're immunocompromised, and there are other factors too. We recently published a paper that looked at factors associated with oral antibiotic treatment failure and found that tachypnea triage, chronic ulcers at the site, a history of cellulitis in the preceding 12 months, or a history of MRSA colonization or infection were all associated with oral antibiotic treatment failure. Excellent. And when you're selecting antibiotics, should patients that have cellulitis receive antibiotics against MRSA, or are you just treating them with other agents? When you assess a patient clinically, if the clinical diagnosis is non-purulent cellulitis, in other words, no pus at all, then antimicrobial therapy should be targeted against beta-hemolytic streptococci and MSSA for non-purulent cellulitis. So if you're going to use oral therapy, this should be cephalexin, otherwise known as Keflex, and its IV counterpart would be Anceph or Cefazolin. Perfect. And the last question I have for you is another one of these sort of conundrums that happen in the emergency department. When do you decide or how do you decide if a patient requires admission to hospital versus outpatient treatment of their cellulitis? That's a great question. And the decision to manage non-severe cellulitis as an inpatient versus outpatient is actually influenced by many factors. If patients require intravenous therapy, outpatient parenteral antibiotic therapy is an attractive option to avoid the need for hospitalization. But there are other factors to consider. Social factors may warrant hospital admission to ensure compliance and for patient safety. A recent uh, prospective observational cohort study at two Canadian EDs identified five predictors independently associated with outpatient antimicrobial, which would be oral or IV therapy, treatment failure. The factors associated with treatment failure as an outpatient were fever at triage, chronic leg ulcers, chronic edema or lymphedema, prior cellulitis in the same area, and lastly, cellulitis at a wound site. Excellent. Thanks so much for reviewing this topic and reviewing a couple of really, really great Canadian papers that have come out recently. For more details, please check out the full article, which is open access over at CGEM's website. The article, once again, is Just the Facts, Diagnosis and Management of Non-Purulent Cellulitis in the Emergency Department. And our guest host was Dr. Christian Yadav. I don't know how many times I've sent home young patients with multiple rib fractures by the way, I don't send home older patients with multiple rib fractures. They're likely to have badness. But when I do send them home, I never feel quite satisfied with the Tylenol and NSAIDs I suggest that they take because I know deep down inside that they're going to have a ton of pain still. And I generally want to avoid opioids whenever possible. So what else can I do to relieve their pain, at least for a little bit of time, 
starting in the ED. Swami's going to hit us now with his serratus anterior block goodness. I want to start this month with a quick story. I was working clinically and a 75-year-old gentleman comes in. He's got emphysema and he's there with back pain after a fall. I look at his vital signs and he's hypoxic around 90%. He's tachypnic with a respiratory rate of about 30. I examine him and I see that he has got a large area of paradoxical wall motion of the chest. Basically, he has a flail segment. And we all know when we see a flail segment, the patient's going to need a chest strain. Even without imaging, we can see in this patient that that's going to be necessary. A quick x-ray shows a hemoneumothorax, a six-rib flail segment. And the question that comes up for us is not about whether we need to place the chest strain. We know that. But what should we give this patient for pain control? The traditional approach is to give the patient lots of opiates, which will be effective in pain control, but it's going to decrease the respiratory drive, create atelectasis, and lead to respiratory failure, especially in a patient that's already hypoxic. Now, you could intubate the patient to remove all of those issues and then put the chest tube in, but that's going to be a bit of a challenging intubation since the patient already has a SAT of around 90%. There are some alternate approaches. You can do something like get a thoracic epidural, but that's obviously well out of the scope of practice of emergency physicians and can be hard to get an anesthesiologist down to do that in a timely manner. What about something that we can do in the emergency department? And that's the serratus plane block. This is a little bit different than a nerve block. What you're doing is actually blocking a fascial plane. You're going to be getting all of the lateral intercostal nerves. In this case, the plane is between the serratus anterior and latissimus dorsi muscles. This block has been shown to give excellent analgesia without systemic side effects, and it markedly reduces the need for opiates. Let's go through the process of doing this. And what I'll say up front is that obviously with nerve blocks, with anything ultrasound, it's better to go on and look at some videos. So the Highland EM site has some fantastic videos on this, and we'll drop links to that in the show notes. Our first step is going to be gathering all of our materials. Grab your ultrasound machine, your needle, and preferably that's going to be a dull tip block needle, but you can also use a spinal needle or an 18 gauge depending on the chest wall thickness. You're going to want two or three 20cc syringes, some sterile gloves and chlorhexidine, and plus or minus extension tubing, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Number two is to select your anesthetic. You want a long-acting anesthetic here. You don't want to have to do this block again. So lidocaine is really going to fall short. Bupivacaine or ropivacaine will be your go-tos for their long-acting effect, but ropivacaine is actually the better agent because it has less cardiotoxic effects. Step three is to calculate your dose. For ropivacaine, the max dose is going to be 3 mg per kg. For bupivacaine, it's going to be 2.5 mg per kilogram. The next thing to do is dilute your anesthetic. You want a large volume of your anesthetic so you can deliver that into the entire fascial plane. So what you do is take your calculated dose of anesthetic and dilute that to a total of 40 cc's, and you can do that with some sterile normal saline. The next step is to locate the fascial plane you're aiming for. Again, there are some great images on the Highland Ultrasound site, as well as the New York Society of Regional Anesthesia site, and we'll drop those in the references. Place the linear probe in the anterior mid-axillary line just under the axilla, and you want to orient it along the ribs. What you're going to do is look at the muscle bodies, and the most superficial one is the lat dorsi. What we want to do is track that lat dorsi posteriorly where it starts to taper. It starts to look almost like a beak. Our goal is to place the needle so that the tip of it is going to be sitting between the lat dorsi and the serratus anterior. That's the plane that we're shooting for. The best way to do this is with an in-plane approach, which means that you're going to be able to see the needle the entire length of the way as it's being guided into that fascial plane. 
When you think you're in the right place, you draw back to confirm you're not in a vessel, and then you can deliver three to five cc's of your dilute anesthetic, and what you should see is the fascial plane start to separate. Those two muscle bodies are gonna separate from each other, and that tells you that you're in the right place. If you don't see that happen, then you're gonna need to reposition your needle, readjust, and try to get into that space. Once you're confirmed in the proper location, deliver the rest of the anesthetic. Now, I wanna discuss a couple of pearls and pitfalls before we wrap this up. Number one is that you can use extension tubing as we mentioned earlier. What you do here is you are guiding the needle into place, you have extension tubing connecting to your syringe that's full of your anesthetic, and your assistant is actually gonna be the one who's squeezing that anesthetic into the needle and into the plane. So now your only focus is on the ultrasound probe in one hand and the needle in the other hand, and somebody else is doing the actual injection. This can be really nice, especially when you're talking about 40 cc's of anesthetic. It's hard to hold both the syringe and the needle and the ultrasound machine in that particular circumstance. If the patient can move around, you can place them into a lateral decubitus position. So if they have a right-sided rib fracture or rib fractures, you put them in the left lateral decubitus position, and that allows a little bit easier access to the right side of the chest. Number three, and we mentioned this earlier, is to always, always, always calculate your dose to avoid local anesthetic systemic toxicity. This is especially important when you're using an agent like bupivacaine, which has some significant cardiotoxicity, but it's really important no matter what agent you're using. And of course, know where your antidote lives, and that's going to be lipid emulsion. For an extra level of safety, for every 5 to 10 cc's that you inject into the space, you can pull back again and make sure that you haven't entered a vessel. Even if you've put the needle in the right place, sometimes it does move around as we're putting the anesthetic into the patient, so this is another safeguard that we can employ. And then the last tip that I have is to make sure that you are always visualizing the needle tip on ultrasound. If you lose that tip, readjust your ultrasound, readjust the needles to make sure that you are tracking it the entire way. Now, going back to our patient, we performed the serratus anterior block, and the patient had complete anesthesia for 36 hours after the block was placed. Later in the patient's course, anesthesia did place an epidural catheter for continued anesthesia, and the patient actually never required an opiate and never needed to be intubated. The patient was able to breathe comfortably with this block in place, and I consider that a big win. Hopefully, this gives you one more tool in your armamentarium for pain control. The next time you have a patient with rib fractures and considerable pain, consider this block instead of just giving opiates and see what you think. Next up, we've got Britt Long from EM Docs summarizing their post on toxic shock syndrome. It's rare, difficult to diagnose, but if you recognize it early, it's a life saved. Let's face it. In emergency medicine, we see a lot of patients with viral-like symptoms. Nausea, vomiting diarrhea, flu-like symptoms, all of these could be due to something as simple as a virus. However, one of our major jobs in emergency medicine is figuring out who has something more sinister. Let me walk you through a case. A couple shifts ago, I had a 22-year-old male who came in with nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. The nurse grabbed me right away as the patient was hypotensive and tachycardic. On my initial exam, he looked toxic and critically ill. When I lifted up his gown to look at his abdomen, I saw a diffuse erythematous rash that involved the entirety of his trunk. Now I thought to myself, what could I be missing in this patient? His age and chief complaint seems fairly simple like just gastroenteritis. But something popped into my head that kind of scared me. Could this be toxic shock syndrome? Well, this patient did end up having toxic shock syndrome. And for this quick hits episode, I'm going to walk you through some key takeaways for this disease. Your first takeaway is that there are two major causes, staph and strep. Second, 
Toxic shock syndrome is due to superantigens causing a massive cytokine release. Finally, toxic shock syndrome is a difficult diagnosis, and we're going to discuss why and what you can do about it. The challenging part about diagnosing toxic shock is that patients present along a clinical spectrum. They can present with symptoms due to toxin secretion or symptoms due to a focus of infection. And this brings in a big difference between staph and strep toxic shock syndrome. For staphylococcal toxic shock syndrome, patients will present with flu-like symptoms, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, diffuse erythema, and a strawberry tongue. However, when you look at streptococcal causes of toxic shock, again, patients present with flu-like symptoms, but then they also have evidence of a local infection such as cellulitis or pneumonia. In fact, over 50% of cases of necrotizing fasciitis that are associated with streptococcal pyogenes present with toxic shock syndrome. Now for our next big point, we're all taught about the classic CDC criteria for diagnosis of toxic shock syndrome involving fever, a rash, desquamation, hypotension, and multi-organ failure. When I look back at my patient, he had fever, rash, hypotension, and some elevated liver function tests. However, I didn't find any desquamation on physical exam. And this brings us to an important point. If you wait to diagnose toxic shock syndrome based on the CDC criteria, it is often too late. For example, desquamation usually does not occur until weeks after the disease initially manifests. And by that time, irreversible organ failure has occurred. So the key takeaway for these patients is that you need clinical suspicion and you should treat based on this suspicion. If you have a patient who has severe systemic illness with either a diffuse blanchable red rash, a young patient with shock and viral-like symptoms, a group A strep infection with a patient who appears critically ill, or vital signs out of proportion to exam, you should suspect toxic shock syndrome and begin treatment with IV antibiotics and fluids, as well as source control. All right, so the big take-home point for TSS is that by the time you see the classic desquamation rash, it's probably too late. So you need to think about toxic shock syndrome in any patient with a viral-like illness who looks really sick and has a diffuse rash. Resuscitate and start empiric antibiotics to cover staph and strep ASAP. Next up, we've got Justin Morgenstern on the new and exciting paper on TXA and traumatic head injury, the CRASH-3 trial. Now, there's been a whole lot of controversy swirling around the FOMED world about this trial in particular, with many different opinions on how this should affect our practice. Let's hear Justin's take. CRASH-3. This is the biggest, most anticipated emergency medicine trial that has been released this year. And even though it was only released a few weeks ago, I am sure that everybody has already heard about it because it has been talked about everywhere. However, considering that every mainstream media report that I saw about this trial was completely wrong, I figured it would be a good idea to cover it here. So, this is a massive multi-center RCT designed to look at tranexamic acid in isolated traumatic head injury with a GCS less than 13 or blood on a head CT. They enrolled more than 12,000 patients, 
However, because both in Crash 2 and in the Woman trial, it looked like TXA was actually harmful if given after three hours, they changed their criteria partway through and only studied patients enrolled in the first three hours. So their actual study population is just over 9,000 patients, which is a slight problem because they needed 10,000 according to their power calculation. These patients were randomized to either intravenous TXA, the standard protocol, one gram over 10 minutes and then one gram over eight hours, and that was compared to placebo. And the primary outcome they were looking at, well, it was a little bit tricky. In the manuscript, they list this as head injury-related death by 28 days. But if you look at clinicaltrials.gov, the registered primary outcome of the trial was just death, all-cause mortality, at 28 days. This is a great trial. It's a tremendous effort, and the researchers deserve a ton of credit. It was massive. They lost very few patients to follow up. They looked specifically for harm, which many RCTs don't. It was appropriately randomized. Allocation was concealed. Like any trial, there are a few issues, but in general, this is a great feat of science. And the results? There was no difference in the stated primary outcome, head injury-related death. It was 18.5% with TXA and 19.8% with placebo. That's a 1.3% difference, but it was not statistically significant. For the more important outcome, and what I think is actually the real primary outcome, there was no change in mortality. A relative risk of 0.96, no statistical difference. They also used two different measures to look at disability here, and the neurologic outcomes were identical between the two groups. So that's a pretty negative trial. There's no change in the primary outcome, there's no change in all-cause mortality, and there's no change in neurologic outcomes. So why was this study in every newspaper? Why are people claiming that TXA is going to save tens of thousands of lives? That's a pretty bold claim, considering the results that we just discussed. Now, before we jump into the result that has everybody excited, let's talk briefly about two EBM concepts. First, subgroups. You've probably heard before that subgroups should be hypothesis generating. They don't give us a reliable answer, and there are a number of reasons for that, but the simplest is just that the more outcomes that you look at, the more likely that you're going to find one that looks positive by chance alone. So it's interesting to look at subgroups, but in general, they should guide future research but not current practice. The other really important concept is disease-specific mortality. Now, this has come up in the Journal Jam series before, so I'll try to be brief, but it is a big issue. Multiple times already, I've said that the authors were specifically looking at head injury-related death. They only cared about the people who died from head injury. But that is a flawed concept for so many reasons. First, it's just incredibly inaccurate. They aren't doing autopsies, so it's just whatever happened to be written on the death certificate. And that's not great at the best of times, but throw in an experimental drug and you're just going to be wrong a lot of the time. And how do you define head injury-related death? What about an aspiration pneumonia? That's not head injury-related. Except the patient would have never aspirated if they didn't have a head injury. But more importantly... If overall mortality is unchanged and fewer people are dying from one cause, that just means that more people are dying from another cause. So while people are really excited about the small decrease in head injury-related death in Crash 3, there was a 20% decrease in some subgroups, they are ignoring the fact that TXA increases mortality from all other causes by 30% in this trial. 
Disease-specific mortality is an unreliable and fictional outcome. People care if they live or die. They don't care what we happen to write on their death certificate. And that is all that you're changing with disease-specific mortality if all-cause mortality isn't changed. So with all that being said, there was a subgroup in this trial, patients with a GCS between 9 and 12, where they did see a statistically significant decrease in head injury-related death. It was a 1.7% absolute decrease, a relative risk of 0.78. This is both a subgroup and a change in disease-specific mortality. So I think it's very clear that that outcome should not change your practice. Now, this is where my first recording for this podcast ended. This trial, as it was published, was clearly a negative trial. But since that recording, the Crash 3 authors actually sent me some extra data. And in their unpublished data, looking at that subgroup, that subgroup of patients with a GCS between 9 and 12, all-cause mortality was also decreased. There was a 1.4% absolute benefit. So I no longer have this disease-specific mortality problem to worry about. But we're still left with two problems. First, this is still a subgroup, and most subgroups don't pan out in future research. So it should still be hypothesis-generating. And second, it's unpublished data, not peer-reviewed or checked in any way. So what should we do? Well, as the trial was published, there was no change in the primary outcome, no change in mortality, and no change in disability. It is clearly a negative trial. Clearly, TXA is not a standard of care. Clearly, TXA should not be strongly suggested in guidelines. Now, there is an interesting subgroup with an important outcome, mortality decreased in patients with GCS 9 to 12. We need more research to confirm that that is real. Because remember, most subgroups don't pan out. And actually, I would bet when we do get this trial, it won't show a mortality benefit. But mortality is an important outcome. And that subgroup was planned, and it makes sense. So while we're waiting for the results of that necessary follow-up study, if you want to use TXA and select patients in this subgroup, I think that's reasonable. I'm definitely not going to knock the TXA out of your hands. It definitely won't be my priority, but I imagine that I will be giving TXA to many of these patients. But in the face of the massive hype that we have seen after Crash 3, I think the most important thing to keep in mind is that there was no change in the primary outcome, there was no change in mortality, and there was no change in neurologic outcomes. We can't forget that. TXA is not the standard of care. We need that next trial. We shouldn't let this become ingrained in our guidelines. In the meantime, remember that evidence-based medicine is a combination of the best available evidence with your clinical judgment and patient values. So everybody out there is going to have to think about these numbers for themselves and apply them as they see fit to their own patients. All right, here's a quick review of our quick hits. First, serratus plane block is a reasonable option for acute rib fracture pain. Check out the Highland ultrasound video for details. Next, Early recognition of toxic shock syndrome can be life-saving. The big pitfall is assuming that it's not TSS if there's no desquamation of the rash. That's a late finding. The way I like to think of TSS is flu-like gastro-ish illness plus shock plus rash equals TSS until proven otherwise. I'll repeat that. Flu-like gastro-ish illness 
plus shock plus rash equals TSS until proven otherwise. Next, for purulent cellulitis, always consider the mimics. POCUS can help rule out an abscess. Oral antibiotics are just as good as IV, but predictors of failure of antibiotics include tachypnea, chronic ulcers, cellulitis in the last year, and colonization with MRSA. And then finally, non-purulent cellulitis does not require routine MRSA coverage. At the top of the podcast was the PARC score. The PARC score is the best pediatric appendicitis risk stratification tool we have. Take the time to go to MDCalc or integrate it into your EMR when you're on shift. Justin brilliantly covered the CRASH-3 trial. The CRASH-3 trial's primary outcome of head injury-related death was no different between the TXA group and the placebo group, but based on communication with the author, we found out that in patients with minor and moderate head injury, a GCS of nine or more, there was a mortality benefit. And finally, double defib is a reasonable option in refractory VF, but do it early, like after the next break in the chest compressions after the third shock. And make sure the pads aren't touching or you might blow up both machines. Stay tuned for the dose VF RCT when we might have some solid evidence one way or the other for double defib. Now, there's about five tickets left for the EM Cases course, which will be dedicated to the memory of Dr. Barbara Tatum. That'll be February in Toronto. It's a two-day course with roundtable discussions with your favorite EM Cases guest experts. And the second day is dedicated to high-fidelity simulation and rapid-cycle procedural workshops. And if you haven't already, try your hand at the free EM Cases Quiz Vault. Almost 3,000 of your colleagues are using it. Remember that a couple weeks after each main episode podcast is released at the end of the Just for Nuggets emails that I hope you're all getting, you can go to the Quiz Vault to ingrain in your brain all the key points from the podcast. Oh, and ECG Cases... One of our new offerings is up and running on the EM Cases website to sharpen your ECG interpretation skills. Do check it out. I'll leave you with Barbara Tatum's favorite quote. People won't remember what you say, and people won't remember what you do, but they will remember how you make them feel. So until next time, be kind and compassionate.